Hello and welcome to Adventurous Investor in Conversation. Uh, I'm very excited to have with me people I've been talking with for ages from Ocean Wall, uh, Nick Lawson and Nikki Grant uh, from Ocean Wall. Uh, they're a, a fantastic alternatives uh, house that I've willingly borrowed lots of research from in the past. So they do some great stuff. Well, we're going to talk about two of our favorite topics, actually, which we are heartily in agreement with. Um, uranium and the whole nuclear uh, question um and also psychedelics um as an investment case so uh, nick and nikki have both are both going to handle different bits of it so I, I thought i'd kick off nick why don't you just give us a bit of an overview just quite a kind of like minute to ocean wall and how you've got here yeah thank you very much and thanks for having us on david and really appreciate the work uh, that you do um and the insights that you give the industry as well around the sort of dark corners of the market so the way in which we got here on uranium was in 2006, I was running special situations at Deutsche Bank and I was given the IPO of a company called Nufcor, which was uh, 10 million pounds in weight of uranium in a cave in Caucasone in the south of France. And we had no idea at the time what to do with this company. No one on the desk had any idea about uranium, but it had to come through uh, our team. That's where it felt it was best to trade it. And nothing happened, and then a lot happened. So Cigar Lake was flooded, uh, and the price of uranium in seven months went from $20 a pound to $137 a pound. Um, and I remember one day our head of derivatives coming up to me saying, we've got to stop trading this stock, because every time we made a print, they lurched up another 5% higher. Um, and it captured my imagination of how a, a good such as uranium that's so completely and utterly priced and elastic could exhibit such price convexity. Um, and uh, I then moved on to a hedge fund called Arrowgrass. We got very involved in Yellowcake that was IPO'd on the London Stock Exchange in 2018. Um, I participated in that from an institutional capacity. Their remit was very, very similar. Uh, they were looking to sequester uranium um, and, and trade it around its NAV. Uh, and when I set up my own vehicle, Ocean Wall, uh, uh, in 2019, the first meeting I took was with Andre Liebenberg, the CEO of Yellow Cake, um, and we've been actively involved uh, in it ever since. So Ocean Wall really is effectively a classic uh, old school merchant bank. Uh, we have a hedge fund business and we have a corporate advisory business that the corporate advisory business Nikki runs. And as I say, I use the phrase, the sort of dark corners of the market. We care about stuff where we can really understand and control the supply demand economics. We're, I mean, we, we, are, we, are, we don't care what the level of Bitcoin is or what the level of the S&P is. For us, it's being patient, having duration, being able to sit in a trade and allow the supply demand economics to play itself out. And in this situation, as we know, we have uh, utility demand significantly exceeding primary production for the last four or five years. Uh, we have a situation in lithium carbonate that comes from the fact that when I was at my hedge fund, I couldn't tell you which car would be the winner in the race to electric vehicle, whether it was Tesla or Jaguar or Renault. What I did know is that lithium carbonate would be the component in every lithium ion battery. So we try and go as upstream as possible in what we look at. Um, and when Nikki comes on and talks about um, medicinal doses of, of psychedelics, you'll understand a little bit more of why we like to be at that kind of frontier in that corner uh, and looking at interesting markets. So for us, it's about the asymmetry, minimal downside, maximum upside, patience and duration. So let's, let's look at um, uranium. Now, let's get some basics out of the way. 
it's not really a traditional spot market. Um, it, a lot of the yeah. contracts, a lot of the contracts have done long term. Uh, we'll, we'll rehearse the basic arguments and then just look at where we are now. It's done a lot of them long term contracts. There's a lot of connections over to the former Soviet Union, Kazakhstanis, uh, Russians do lots of processing. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's mainly what what trading well, what activity there is. It's all around uranium oxide. Is that right? Um, yes. Yeah, so, so sorry. Yeah. yeah. And 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 the main and it's quite a concentrated series of buyers, isn't it? So it's mainly utility companies uh, to for their, you know enriched uranium or the uranium which they use in their power stations. So it's it's quite a complex market. It's not like oil where it's very fungible and you stick it in all tank, you send it around the world. It's not the same market at all, is it? No, it's it's the, the, the fuel the fuel cycle is incredibly complex. So you start off from the um, the the mining and milling side, then you have the the conversion, the enrichment. So the uranium that comes out of the ground, which has the 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 nickname yellow cake, is U three hundred eight, which effectively we could touch, you could lick. You know, there's no real radioactivity. Obviously, I'm not advising that, but it has no real radioactivity levels no, attached okay. to it. <laughs> and 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 then and then, and then the, you start a two-year cycle, uh, which effectively is the first stage is where you turn it into uh, uranium hexafluoride, which means putting it into a, 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 a centrifuge with fluorine, and then we go through a, a, a process which takes us to the final fuel fabrication, where we get the enriched uranium and pellets, and then those have to be shipped, um, uh, transported around the world. Uh, mainly done by um, Arano, the French company, and that goes to the uh, nuclear power plant. And I think one of the most compelling issues that was never in our thesis that's happened has been the uh, slowdown um, in um, the, the not deglobalization, but the slowdown in supply chain caused by one, COVID, and, and more recently, secondly, what's the events in Russia. So within that enrichment cycle, you have to 40% of the world's uranium goes via Rosatom, the Russian uranium company. But also it comes out of the, from the Kazakhs, it comes out of the port of Odessa. So you now have this situation where uranium, one, isn't being enriched um, for the US market or for overseas markets, but also it's having to work its way through the Caspian rather than, than, than out through the Black Sea. So we had this situation, we met with um, uh, the head of transport at Arano, um, a couple of months ago, and the uh, cost of shipping uranium has gone up by five times. But also, there's the other issue of of, of, of nimbyism that when you're shipping nuclear fuel in its in its uh, highly enriched format, you know you do have you know uh, specialist hazchem, you know people in suits, you know it has to be secured. And a lot of people just don't want it going through their um, their backyard. And so it's very, very difficult now, that whole shipment. And if one looks at what are the only Russian flag vessels going to U.S. ports, it's uranium. Now, the, the, the U.S. government can sequester as much, or they can say, we're going to buy as much uranium aggregate as possible. Let's restart the mines. But it's about the final, the final enriched stage, the enriched uranium product, the EUP, that's the most crucial bit that was contracted two years ago. If that doesn't turn up, then you have problems. And we've been meeting with uh, different sort of US uh, state senators. And I think there's a genuine issue that when you think about somewhere like um, the US, 90% of uh, Florida's clean energy comes from nuclear. Yeah. You know, one in 10 households is, yeah. is supplied via nuclear. And so I think we have a very, very real issue and you can see why Biden's looking to put through that bill about sequestering the 4.3 billion. But you need to buy the enriched product. It's not about buying the aggregates, but buying the enriched product. 
and there are very very few enrichers in uh, left out when you when you strip out the um, the Russian market. In fact, we're very excited by one in Australia at the moment, but it's it's a, a, it's a, a sort of third gen technology that hasn't been proven yet. So so I think I think what what Putin has done, what we call the the the, the Putinization of uranium, is turn uranium as he has done with gas, as he has done with oil, as he is doing with Ukrainian wheat into a weapon. And the U.S. will be in a situation where you cannot afford the regional blackouts if someone like Dominion goes down on the East Coast. Now, when a nuclear power plant doesn't have uranium, there is no substitutional effect. You can't put anything else in. It has to be enriched uranium product. It has to be. So if you have to shut a nuclear power plant, it costs hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to restart. And in that meantime, you have these obviously colossal um, uh, blackouts that take place as well. So, the the trade what attracted us to us was the post Fukushima, um, the secular bear market. The market was awash with Japanese mobile inventory, that saw the price of uranium collapse. It meant that the break even for the U.S. mines meant the U.S. mines shuttered. So there wasn't anyone producing the uranium. You withdrew that mobile inventory as the spot market traded it away and it was it was taken up. And suddenly you're in a situation where you've been in a, an 11 year bear market as we are post Fukushima and there's not enough uranium being mined. And now added to that, we have this complication of the fact that we have these geopolitical dynamics adding to that as well, as well as the fact that we're in this this world now, this nuclear renaissance, where we're talking about the electrification of everything. I mean, back in 06, 07, when we were trading Nufcore, you know, you still had the memories of uranium, of nuclear was still synonymous with Chernobyl and Three Mile Island. Now you have bipartisan agreement in the Senate for nuclear. You know, the Germans are turning a volt fast back to nuclear and restarting the reactors. Everyone realizes that the only way to have clean baseload power is via nuclear. You know, when the sun don't shine and the wind don't blow, intermittent power does not work. And so this renaissance, this nuclearification, of, of, of all countries' energy policies means that you need this simple component, uranium. And, and until we get to the stage of nuclear fusion, so nuclear fission is the splitting of atoms, nuclear fusion is the conjoining of two hydrogen isotopes, until we get to fusion, which we think in commercial developments about 10 years ago, everything, everything is going to be down to uranium-fuel-driven nuclear fission. And this means that this is the best multi-generational bull market opportunity that's ever existed for a commodity let me let me pick up so one can understand the the, the secular drivers that you've just uh, eloquently outlined but that doesn't necessarily how does that translate itself into market dynamics yeah in terms of the actual price because as we said at the beginning the price that we see on it we don't really see price on a screen for uranium it's it's different contract terms it's a different market it's quite a complex market how will that how will all of those drivers that you've articulated how will they find their way through to the commodity price and then i suppose uh, yellow cake is itself a derivative of the prices although it is actually it's a straight derivative it's a straight it's a yeah it does it's a delta one derivative it does trace the discount sometimes. So, so, so there's, there's, two, there's, there's two markets. There's the one that you see if you type in uh, numaco.com, uh, which you have to get permissioning for, which is the spot market. And the spot market isn't really a true reflection of uranium demand. Yeah. What that's been is a sort of daily snapshot of the nuclear fuel forward curve. 
And if you look at the volume that's traded on it, it's barely any volume trades at all. Um, and what happens is it almost becomes a, a, a sort of like a, a where carry traders nickel and dime on 25 cent spreads, uh, the price. The real market takes place on the contract market, which is done between um, uh, suppliers of uranium at different parts of the fuel circle uh, cycle um, and with the utilities themselves. Now, to try and paint you the picture of what does a, nu uh, a nuclear fuel buyer look like? Well, they sit within a, a nuclear power plant itself. They're often um, uh, a sort of public uh, servant or from a sort of like a public sector background. For them, it's not about price, it's about security of supply. Yeah. So uranium is an overall composition between about 4 and 6% as it stands at the moment of the ongoing cost of a nuclear power plant. So really, if they're paying $50 or $100, it's still very much at the margin. What they need to do is they need to make sure that they have um, enough uranium secured and that uranium being converted. If they can phone yeah. up Cameco or Kazatomprom or um, UEC or whoever it is and say, can we contract uranium at this price? Can you deliver uranium at this price? And they say yes in five years time, then they've got a deal. But what we're now seeing is that those, um, uh, that's slightly changing now, which is when you have these re requests for quotes, RFQs that go through, the why would Cameco sell forward at the current share, uh, the current uranium spot price of 46 spot 48, they wouldn't. So there's two prices. There's your your contract price where they can actually break even. Now we believe that the break even price, inflationary break even price, of a U.S. mine, and remember, not one pound has come out of the ground of a U.S. mine for four years, is around 80 dollars. So no one is going to be contract. No one in the U.S. is going to be contracting uranium forward for anything less we believe than probably about $90 to $100 a pound which is twice where we are now. Now the cost of extraction is different for different people for people like Encore Energy or Kazatomprom it's a little bit lower but again why would they sell below the spot price or at the spot price when they can see the same um, uh, supply demand economics that we can as well and so you have this very very opaque market which is effectively where pricing is referenced through a company called UX you pay an absolute fortune to subscribe to that and once they have enough critical mass either enough reference prices that are going through so they have five prices on five-year contracts swoo at I don't know $140 and that price gets printed now those prices are going through so swoo is um, the one of the last stages before enriched uranium product it means separation works unit the price of that has more than doubled in the last couple of months but the market won't see that. What the market focuses on is that first U308 price. Right. That's the bit that's spartan everyone and everyone's been sequestering. Now, that will be a massive barometer. It will be a barometer. It's, it's the price proxy for sparks for the Sprott Fund. It's the price proxy for uh, Yellow Cake. But the real action is taking place in the contract market and what you will have is you'll have a pull to par once the market begins to see these reference prices going through at 90 100 dollars 150 whatever it may be you'll begin to get the pull par in the spot market but for the time being because there is no volume and and this is what happened in 2007 nothing happened and then a lot happened the price did nothing and then it went up seven times now at that time in the market the tradable equity shares totaled $150 billion. Today, that number is 33. So we're a fifth of the market cap of where we were back in 2007. And so the little door 
to get into the uranium market is is a fifth smaller than it was beforehand. There is not enough uranium stocks to really take the full expression of financial demand that will take place when the uranium price begins to move. Now you have listed sequesters. Sequesters are the ones that buy and hold, the hoarders, the yellow cakes, the spots. Then you have the producers, Chemico and Kazatom Prom. Then you have the explorer developers, um, you know, people like the fissions of this world, the encores. Then you have the um, uh, enrichers. Um, now, the 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 already we're beginning to see hedge fund participation in uh, Spart. Uh, Caxton recently bought shares. Goldman's have been on the bid every night in one of their funds. But there's only three dedicated funds that actually buy and hold uranium at the moment, and most of them are closed. Mm. Segra, um, Satcham Cove, Tees River in London, uh, Geiger Counter. There is not enough. The the the, the reason why. Paladin went up 1500% back in 07 was it literally it just it just couldn't contain it wasn't capacious enough the amount of money that came into the space and now we're a fifth below that with more explosive supply demand economics so you looking at the numerico the, the 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 spot price well hold on if all this is to be believed why is it not taking place well they are it's a tale of two very very different um, uh, markets this. The, the, the spot uranium price is not a true reflection of the supply demand fundamentals. It's a very small, illiquid carry trade portal for a number of sort of traders who specifically carry trade a nickel and dime the 25 cent spread compared to the colossal sort of public sector driven market and as soon as that buyer that public that servant within the npp the national power the nuclear power plant believes that he cannot get uranium his hair is on fire yeah. he will pay anything and, and the one addition i'd say to that a very interesting kind of recent development is we've seen vast amounts of money going into ESG funds. Um, and a couple of the ESG funds now are beginning to include nuclear in their, mi in their mix of ESG. And, and that alone, even if they say give a, I don't know, one, two, three percent weighting to nuclear, which yeah. uh, I think they should because it is a clean energy, um, then that, that could add yet more demand on the liquidity side to the equation. Uh, and as you say, on the supply side, the, the availability has gone down by 80%, but the demand could increase. So Correct. I think that's very, but that, that classification, the EU taxonomy, yeah. I think is very, very important. And again, all signs lead to nuclear now, which, which hasn't happened before. But it's not just each year there's a gap, it becomes a cumulative gap of mined uranium. And, and when people go, oh, but you know, you can turn a mine on, you can't, a mothballed mine takes years to turn on because you have got to go through the WNA, you've got to have um, uh, uh, the uh, permissioning redone, you've got to rehire geologists, rehire scientists, rehire the miners, you've got to get the gear in. Often when you're mining uranium, you're out in places like the Athabasca Basin in Saskatchewan, which are incredibly remote. There's no tap. There's no Saudi marginal supplier of oil in this story. There is no tap. Um, okay, um, one, one other question. So let's just say you buy the thesis. A lot of people, most actually most ordinary investors, rush off and buy Cameco or a mining company. Yeah, Cameco, I would look at Cameco as the equivalent of, say, Newmont in gold. Yeah, it's a kind yeah. of it's a player and I'll just go and buy that because it's a miner. Or I might go and yeah. buy the small cap guys because they're more leveraged, they're more geared to the upside. Why, why, why not do that and invest in something like Yellowcake, which is which is a direct hold, it's a delta one effectively, delta one yeah. hold 
Why? Why? Why pick one of these? So, 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 I think, and I think a lot of this. I mean, there's a, an amazing guy called uh, John Quakes on Twitter, who, uh, when this, when we all started this journey for the second time about four or five years ago, you could have everyone following uranium in a party in a phone box. It was that small. <laughs> and then what's happened is you've had with the democratization of finance, the the advent of the whole meme sort of trader. Because of the, uh, the, the, the the volatility and the potential for exponential gains, you've attracted a, a form of investor uh, that has not been a, is the right custodian for these shares. And what do I mean by that? These shares move around. They are very, very volatile. And even today, when one looks at something like uh, today's the 25th of July, one looks at uh, UEC, Uranium Energy Corps. Um, they're up 10%. Now, they could easily be down 10% as they are, whatever. So I think what happened has been is when you've had issues that have taken place with uh, crypto, you've had people having to sort of fire sell um, other areas of their portfolio. And you've had this sort of ATM margin call situation where people have had to take cash elsewhere. And so what we have had through is this sort of washing through of these kind of stocks. Now, that's fine for... Um, institutional investors who have term have done the work but it's not good for the retail investor to see their portfolio which may have lever attached to it and there's you know you know you know everyone has their own choice as to how they want to lever up their portfolio but that can become quite a hairy rise for something like the yellow cake and you use the word around a sort of derivative I mean I only use the word delta one it is a one-for-one -one correlation to the pounds in the ground your is stored at a blind hope river in Ontario which is a Cameco storage facility Cameco has got a triple a rating credit rating if anything happens you're insured by a triple a rated um you know cameco stands for canadian mining company so you're you're back almost by sort of the government of sorts um the 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 management andre liebenberg ex billiton is is there to effectively manage the nav around either buybacks or placing so if the shares are in a, 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 and, and as he has done a big discount to uh, their nav he can use the cash on the balance sheet to buy back the shares to control the nav discount I'm sorry, and no, ditto, what, is, what is the discount you reckon at the moment uh, I can tell you what the discount is. Hold on two seconds. Do you mind, while we talk, can I just input it into my model and tell you? But it's around. It's, it's a, I think the, the 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 dollars the dollars obviously helped it as well. I think it's around eight percent. It's around eight 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 nine percent at the moment. It has been as wide out in the last couple of weeks as twenty two um, uh, percent. But the shares have had a very good move. They uh, produced results last week, which is always difficult for ETF to actually see that as good news. But, you know, it's a real year of um, the benefit of a buy and hold strategy with uranium. It's a great way for investors to directly participate in what's going on. Um, uh, you know, they're, they're up for the year, which is great. But the most important thing is with Andre is when they do see an opportunity, they've got an off-take agreement with Kazatomprom. When they do see an opportunity to secure, they've got a, a right to buy $100 million in value every year and they have so for the last few years exercised that because they see the benefit of, of hoarding of buying and hoarding uranium um, as it stands at the moment and Andre Liebenberg put out a, a, an outlook statement on it which is very much the things we've been talked about very very confident in the supply demand fundamentals you know obviously we're we're, we're seeing a global demand for clean energy now has completely focused on nuclear energy. You're seeing the positive um, uh, policy developments in the US. Um, you know, the Chinese in their most recent five-year plan have got a massive build-out going away. And if one is to, you know, 
address climate change urgently it's the yeah. only way that you can do that and then you have the, the 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 growth of small modular reactors which are these smrs where rather than going through all the permissioning of building a giant you know um uh, 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 water power reactor you can get an smr into the back of a a huge aircraft and have it assembled from kit in seven days so think about that what that does for desalination plants for the saudis out in the middle of the desert you know you can really begin to um, uh, see technology assisting this trade, the move for clean energy. And then you have the fact that the utility companies now, as we've talked about, have got uncovered fuel requirements. Now, we heard Urenco, which is, um, uh, is, is part British owned, speak at the last nuclear fuels conference. And they reckon that the inventory levels for US utilities are down to one, uh, uh, 17 months. Wow. Okay. You know, and, and, and so they, 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 they've got to start looking at their fuel requirements going out. And, and it's, this, is, this is about, with yellow cake, buying, holding and sitting there. Now, back in March 2020, these shares got hammered because as the whole market got hammered at the start of COVID, they yeah. fell to £1.35. The fundamentals hadn't changed. You know, the shares got up to £4.80 just after the Russian invasion. The fundamental hadn't changed. But what you do have sometimes is they become a barometer for overall risk of the market. So one has to be cognizant of that. But if one wants and always, you know, I'm sadly old enough to have uh, been through quite a few cycles. If one wants to sleep at night, which is the most overarching aim of any good investor, this is the stock to own. Okay, well, on uh, that upbeat note, let's just switch to psychedelics, shall we, and bring in um, Nikki. Thanks, Nick. That was a very good summary. But Nikki, now Nick, Nick mentioned uh, meme stocks actually, and I, and I want to I want to sort of kick off with that because um, again, the, the the thesis for for psychedelic stocks, and we're mainly talking about there's only really four or five companies. Funny enough, not a lot not a lot of companies. Again, that's another mirror of of nuclear. I mean, there's Atai, I never have now to pronounce it, Atai, Compass, Cybin, I can't remember, you, you're filming and anybody else is in there. And with the basic thesis is that psychedelics are a really interesting pioneering area for the treatment of long-term mental health issues. Yeah. So depression, PTSD, that kind of stuff. Anybody who see the BBC documentary, did it? I think Horizon did it about a year ago, a year or two ago, will, will understand what's going on at Imperial um, under Professor Nuttall's work. There's a lot of big research going on in John Hopkins as well. So this is this isn't kind of fruity stuff. This isn't you know Allen Ginsberg. This is kind of proper biomedical research to treat long-term treatment of mental health issues. But the problem was is that it didn't it get caught up. A lot of the psychedelic stocks came out in the last couple of years, and they did sort of get dragged into the coattails of cannabis, didn't they? Which is a classic meme stock thing. And then of course all the private investors, as as, as Nick said, you know had an ATM issue. And basically, had to sell the cannabis stocks, um, and it sort of got dragged into that. And at one point, Compass's I follow Compass closely. You know, crashed, and it was you know, it wasn't that far above net cash. Yeah, um, in terms of share price, probably not too dissimilar from Cyber and, and Where are we now? We how are those projects going? I've noticed, by the way, Compass's share prices gone up 90% in the last couple of months. So the, the market does look like it might have stabilized. Where do you think we are? So let's let's start on the research. Is there any more progress on the fundamental biomedical research? Are we any closer to the goal of bringing out the right kind of medications for long-term mental health issues? I think, yeah, I mean, I think we are. Um, and I think current trials that are undergoing are showing really good results. And yes. now there are more of them. 
I think you're absolutely right. Initially, what happened was these stocks came out into the market. People very much put them alongside cannabis. They were completely misunderstood and were really being followed by the wrong type of investors. Um, it attracted yeah. a lot of retail investors. Um, yeah. There were a lot of kind of Reddit followers who would buy into that. And actually, they just didn't really understand, first of all, that these were these were pure drug development companies. There was never going to be any recreational side to it. So, in fact, they are at pains now to very much distance themselves from those cannabis stocks. Um, I think, actually, what happened in the sell-off has probably done the sector a lot of favours. It's taken it down to... Um, levels that are more realistic and understandable. I think now the right kind of analysts are looking and being able to value them properly. Um, and on top of that, I think what we'll see over the next 12 months is that a lot of companies start to fall away. The companies that aren't well managed, that don't have the right clinical trials, that aren't well funded, they're going to disappear. And actually, um, a few months ago at the Psych Symposium in London, Christian Angermeyer said, 12 months' time, there'll be five or six companies left. And actually, I think that will do the sector a lot of favours. I think the key things you need to look for in the stocks are a really strong management team with drug development scientific officers leading the way. So the guys who really know what they're doing, a strong cash balance because to fund the next 12, 18 months, it's going to be very hard to raise in that sector generally. Um, and I think if you haven't got that cash, you're not pushing ahead, you're going to fall behind. Uh, I think we're going to see a lot of M&A. So already um, Cybin a couple of weeks ago announced that they bought clinical trials from another company who doesn't have a good cash balance. So I think we're going to see more of that. And I also think we are going to see the big farmers start to sniff around. Now that we have got clinical trials moving forward and, and in phase two, um, A and B, I think you're going to see the big farmers now not be able to come into this market. And obviously, we've already got Johnson Johnson, who have a ketamine spray product. Um, but I think we'll start to see them come in and take an interest in these big five or six companies. Yeah, and, and I, 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 I'll, I'll double back on that. I, but just I thought the interesting side point, the Economist ran a great article in their science section saying they would, they, they've only just worked out why traditional antidepressants work and, and originally been thinking about it was to do with increased serotonin levels and now they think it's something else. And I always thought that's an interesting measure about how actually the existing range of medications that the big pharma companies use, they don't know how they work, yeah, if they work at all. And therefore, anybody who tries to shut down psychedelics and say, ah, oh, yes, well, we don't know how it works. The big drug companies won't be interested. Well, it's not like it's not the problem with the existing mental health medications that we've got because we don't know how they work either. So that's why big big farmers might get interested because you know what? If it works, it works. Now, um, on the on the on the cash thing, that I suppose because we should really look at them as biotech businesses in reality, or or, or life sciences drugs companies. Um, how long, how much money, how much money do they need, or how, how much time do they need to buy themselves? So I think I did the maths, which I, I, I mean, I looked at Compass, but I mean, I'm sure it's the same for everybody else. Uh, um, I, I reckon they had about two years, two and a half years of cash. If you just kept shoving out cash out the back door as they have recently, and I'm sure they'll probably cut it down. 
do, do most to do the top guys, and there's only really your point about three or four people who's left in the game with enough cash. Do they have enough time? How long will it take them to get to the point at which they don't have to keep spending all this amount of cash? They can actually get a drug out of the market or maybe get bought out by Big Pharma. I think most of them with the current cash levels have probably got 18 months, two years. So I think your assessment is exactly right. I think within that time, they're going to have clinical trials, which are getting a lot of acceleration from the regulatory bodies. Um, I think within, within that time, you're likely to see big pharma coming in because they're going to be at a level where they can't be ignored anymore. Um, obviously, the treatments for mental health haven't changed in decades. Uh, psychedelics, um, and actually, we often talk about the fact that, the, that maybe the sector needs to rename themselves because I think as soon as you hear psychedelic, people immediately think of the illegal drugs. Um, actually, psychedelics historically were being investigated and trialed um, in the 40s and 50s very successfully and already being able to show really good results. So, so this isn't really a novel thing. This is something that just went on pause for decades because of all the illegal drug taking in the 60s and the fact that the governments put most of the drugs into Schedule uh, 1 and made it virtually impossible to do any trials. And that is the interesting thing too because right now the governments are... Being, under, being put under huge pressure by lobbying groups. In Europe, um, in January of this year, a brand new lobby group covering the whole of Europe um, started up, and they're going to lobby, um, focusing specifically on psilocybin, to remove that from Schedule 1, to allow more clinical trials to be done more easily, more cheaply, and quicker. And I think that just shows that there's huge momentum across the companies, but also actually across governments to, to really accelerate this treatment. Yeah, and anybody who's interested in this, uh, Michael Pollan did a fantastic book on the whole area, which is uh, absolutely essential, really, and make, makes the point Nikki made, which is, you know, this stuff in the 1950s was going gangbusters in terms of medical research. And then basically, Timothy Leary came along and it all went a bit peak tong. Um, and um, actually, David, uh, the, um, uh, that book is has been made into a Netflix uh, yes. documentary series about four yeah. I think there are and that's just been released and is and is fascinating um really fascinating if you and it also the podcaster and neuroscientist Sam Harris has done a lot of work done a lot of broadcast looking at the whole psychedelics area and and everything from microdosing to you know long-term effects and then and he's really very interesting on the subject so um so we so that just run us through the main players that you think that you know the, the sorry being a bit sexist but the last men standing <laughs> um could be the last people standing but i went wrong metaphor um who are the last people standing in this game then who've got enough resources that you think to stay in the market i think at this stage compass and atai the european companies they're very well funded um and they will definitely you know, we'll we'll have two two and a half years worth of of uh, runaway. Cybin yeah. um, in the US again, very very strong. They're already looking at M and A targets. They're very well funded, um, and they are the only New York um, stock exchange listed uh, company. Yeah. They're a very strong company across across the board. MindMed. Uh, another another US company. Those would be the four that I would really focus in on. Um, I think you will see a lot of those very small 
um, Canadian listed companies just simply fall away. Um, they won't have the resources to last and they won't be able to get things into trial or carry them forward. And I think in, in 12 months time, they'll just simply disappear. And, uh, and this is a, a kind of $64 trillion question, which none of us really know the answer to, except probably the people running the trials at the moment. When, when do we get a sense that we think we might see some first medications hit the market? Maybe just in kind of early early use cases. Are, uh, is, is it? Are we looking? I mean, if we're thinking two two and a half years for the uh, for the um, research pipeline, are we talking five years commercially, or are we talking nuclear fusion? It's always ten years, or twenty years, or thirty years, or forty years. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think they would hope it's quicker than that. Um, 2024-2025, I think you're going to start, especially if the momentum of pushing these things through. Um, carries on. I think that's a realistic um, time frame. One very interesting thing also that started to come out is the ability to assess how these drugs work. And one of Cybin's partners is a company called Kernel Technology. They have a neuroimaging helmet which allows them to actually scan real time as a psychedelic is taken. So they can see the effects on the brain and how that's working. So for the first time, they might actually be able to have a quantitative um, judgment on what a drug does, a psychedelic or, or any um, drug does to you in terms of brain activity. And up until now, there has simply been a kind of test of how are you feeling rather than actually being able to look at data and say we can see this is the effect on the brain. And I think we'll see more of that kind of thing. But that those things will be um, also a game changer in that industry. And I think the one also I'd add on to that is, is that certainly if you read Pollan's book and you, talk, and you listen to Sam Harris, this importance of uh, when you take the drugs to be guided in the right therapeutic setting um, is so critically important. You know, how many of our friends were growing up busily found a bunch of magic mushrooms and basically took it in the in the bike shed and didn't come out very well at the end of it. Shows you that the environment, um, the setting, as I think it's called, um, is actually crucial. And and when when these drugs get into commercial development, actually I suspect that just as much emphasis will go on how they're used and in what environment they're used and what with what guides they're used as the actual biochemical formulation. Absolutely, and lots of companies are already starting up in that sector to provide the infrastructure for giving that drug. It will never be a kind of t go away and take it at home. It will always be given with, as you say, a guide, a therapist in, a, in the correct setting. Um, those, those companies are already starting up, those clinics are already starting up, and a lot of um, the big drug companies are also investing with partners who will provide the setting for those drugs. And I do want to finish just, uh, uh, with one very last quick question, probably for both of you, but because um, Nick mentioned lithium, and I can't help but when we talk about energy transition, and, and, and I've I just got a 64, again, another $64 trillion question really for both of you, is uranium, lithium, um, probably not psychedelics, that probably won't help the transition. Um, but um, one of the contentions I've heard is, is that um, from analysts saying, you know what, to make the transition, there's just not enough materials out there, yeah? Um, not enough lithium, not enough uranium. If we're going to do the quantum scale up, yeah, that we need for electrification, there's, a, there's basically an enormous capacity problem 
which is we've got all these new things, but we just don't have enough of the right metals, materials to make it work. And that we're going to ram into that in the next three, four, five years. And actually, that might actually derail the whole transition. Do you think that that's a valid fear or is that maybe scaremongering? I think I think there is enough of both uranium and lithium. They are abundant materials. I think it's the harnessing and the mining that are the prohibitive costs. And when one looks at the uh, demand numbers, we were looking for electric vehicles when we first started this journey for 2024. We realized that there was only a seventh of that demand could be satisfied from current lithium extraction, whether it was uh, water or whether it was hard rock. And so I think it's the scale of that. And obviously the, the Chinese have known for some time, which is why you're seeing Gangfen by lithium and all these other assets. It's it's the commercialization of the extraction that is the, the, the issue. The reason why Putin was so keen to rush into Kazakhstan was because although the Russians can mine uh, uranium yeah. domestically, it's of a much lower grade than what you get from uh, the, uh, the the Kazakh fields. So I think the issue is they're abundant these these minerals, but it's the cost of extraction, um, and that's what this now makes it so compelling. Um, uh, and, and the M and A activity in the uh, South American Triangle at the moment is sort of testament to that. Okay. Well. Um... Uh, fascinating session. I thoroughly recommend going to Ocean Wall's website. You will see quite a few good research reports there. Um, I, as I read, just was reading Nikki's re- psychedelic reports, which is, I thought was fascinating. And they, you guys do a regular update on lithium and the uranium market. So I thoroughly recommend checking out the research website. In the meantime, thank you very much to Nick Lawson and Nikki Grant from Ocean Wall. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you, David.